0: The following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. Anybody do puzzles? We like puzzles? Puzzlers? Uh, we used to do a lot of puzzles growing up, and now my kids are to the age where they, they've started doing puzzles, so we're doing more and more puddle, puzzles together. Um... <clears throat> but the most frustrating thing about puzzles, and there's lots of frustrating thing about puzzles, which is why some of you are like, I don't do puzzles, right? But the most frustrating thing about doing puzzles is there's inevitably that moment, right, where you've got that puzzle, and you've done the whole puzzle, and there's like four spots left, right? You look, and you've got three puzzle pieces, so you put those other three in, and then you start looking under the box and you're looking under the table and you're looking wherever you keep the puzzles. And then you start thinking, well, should I go through all the other boxes of puzzles that I have to try to find this one piece? But inevitably you come up one piece short and that piece ends up being the most important piece of your puzzle, right? Because it's the one that completes the puzzle. See, puzzle pieces, if you'd taken that same puzzle piece that you're missing, if you'd taken it before you started putting the puzzle together, before you lost that piece, You'd look at it and you'd go, oh, that's that's cool, but it would be nothing special. You'd set it aside just like any other piece of the puzzle. It's only when you zoom out and you see that this is that final piece that you realize just how significant that one little puzzle piece could be. Now, when we talk about Christmas and the birth of our savior, we're not talking about just any old puzzle piece that you'd see and take out and be like, oh, that's fine, but that's another piece. No, we're talking about a centerpiece to the puzzle. Even so, the reality remains that you and I will only ever fully realize the the complete significance of that piece of the puzzle, of the birth of Jesus Christ, when we see how it completes the whole picture The whole story of God's love, God's redemption, and God's deliverance. See, Christmas is not an isolated event. No, it's part of God's story. So how do we think about the complete significance of the birth of Jesus Christ? And again, that's what we're going to be talking about over these next four weeks We'll look at the Christmas story through the lens of Genesis 1, verse 1 through 3 and see how God's creation helps us to better understand his work of redemption through the incarnation of Christ. So the first thing we're going to do is today we're going to lay the foundation for the next three weeks as we look at Genesis 1, verse 1. And we're going to start to come to this complete understanding by first seeing in Genesis 1, 1, the perfect work. The perfect work. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And a verse you know well, and a verse you've read, a verse you've memorized many times. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, this creation that God made when God created the heavens and the earth, what he created was totally utterly and unequivocally perfect. Okay, do we do we do we grasp this? When we look at Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1, we see that God created the heavens and the earth and he did it perfectly. Right. It was in this creation of God, as we read through the rest of chapter one and, and chapter two, we see that it is here in this perfect creation that God declared his work good. Right? He looks over all the things he, he makes and he says, this is good. This is good. This is good. And if you were with us, I think it was about five years ago, we studied the first 11 chapters of Genesis together. And we said, when you look at, at Genesis one and, and God says, it's good, it's not good as opposed to it being bad. He says, what I did is good, meaning it is life-giving and life-sustaining. Everything God did was life-giving and life-sustaining. This perfect creation God looks at, he says, it is good. It's in this perfect creation that not only did everything God do was good, but it's here that, that nature flourished. If you look in chapter two, verse eight and nine, it says, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he placed the man that he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, right? There There were no places in God's original creation where Adam and Eve had to go and go, well, I wonder if something will grow here. Like, I don't know if the soil is good enough. I don't know if the, 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 the temperature and, all, and the precipitation and all this stuff is gonna be just right to grow something. No, no, no. Nature flourished in God's original creation, in his perfect creation. So God declares his work good. It's here that, na- that nature flourishes. It's here that work was easy and not toilsome. If you remember Genesis chapter two, Verse 15, it says, the Lord God took man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. So often we think of work in our lives as some some just evil we have to endure in order to live, right? I I have to go to work. I have to work hard so that I can feed my family so that I can eat, so that I can live, so I can have shelter over my head. But this was not God's purpose for work. When he puts Adam in the garden and says, you're gonna work this? That's before sin, Work precedes sin, which means work is glorious, which means work is good. It is life-giving, life-sustaining, at least in God's perfect creation it is, right? It's in God's perfect creation, not only that, that he says everything is good, that nature flourishes, that work was easy and not toilsome, but it was here that God communed naturally with mankind. In chapter three, verse eight, the first half of verse eight, it says, uh, then the man and his wife, right? Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And we're gonna talk about the significance of that verse in a minute within its context, but just understand that Adam and Eve knew God was walking in the garden. This wasn't abnormal. That God was physically in the garden with them. And they spoke to him They communed with him. So in God's perfect creation, this sounds great, doesn't it? Everything's good. Nature flourishes. Your work is easy. You have a very natural, physical communion with God. Doesn't that, does that sound good to anybody else? Is it just me? That sounds awesome. So what happens? Why is this not the case? Well, you know the answer, Adam and Eve. They messed it all up when they brought sin into the picture. Right? And always we have to remember we can't be too hard on them because if it had gotten to, to us, we would have messed it up. So be thankful that it was them and not us. But Adam and Eve bring sin into the picture. When we talk about Christmas, we talk about the coming of our Savior. We have to ask the question why does our world need saving? Why does the world need saving? It's not because of some flaw in God's design or his creative effort, but it is because of our sin, our sinful nature and our sinful choices. I, when I was in college, <clears throat> I, I worked at a golf course part-time and there were these, uh, this certain group of guys who were members at this golf course is a private club. Um, and every time a brand new like golf club or golf ball would come out, they would buy it. Like, the day it came out, they had it in their hands. And they'd always come out to their buddies bragging about the new, you know, their new driver or their new putter, this great new equipment. And then they'd go out and play exactly the way they played the day before. You know what the problem was? It wasn't that that new equipment was awful. It's that they were awful. They were terrible golfers. Buying new equipment wasn't gonna help them. It wasn't the club's fault. It was their fault so too is God's work perfect. And we can never, ever, ever forget this, that God's work is perfect. It is we who are imperfect. It is our sin that causes the problem. But the fact that God's work is perfect gives us two implications that I wanna I want bring. It has many, many implications in our lives, but let me give you just two that I wanna focus on this morning. First, the fact that God's work is perfect means that God doesn't make mistakes. God makes no mistakes, not in his creative act, not in his commands, not in his laws, not in his structure of society, of worship of humankind, not in his judgment, and not in his redemptive plan. Jesus Christ was not God's plan B, as we mentioned earlier. The world needs saving, but it's not because God messed up. It's because we sin. Okay, so God makes no mistakes. The second implication of God's perfect creation is this, that God's creation is meant to be a blessing, God's creation is meant to be a blessing. Let me remind you of something this. I heard this a couple weeks ago and I know this like intellectually, but I had never really thought of it this way. Always remember the Bible starts in Genesis 1 and not Genesis 3. The Bible starts with God's perfect creation, not the fall and not the messed up world in which we live in. See, too often we come to our our perception of the world around us and we're like, well, why would God allow this? Well, why would God do this? If God is really, like, if he really loves me, wouldn't he do? Hold on a second. Remember the Bible starts in Genesis one. God did everything perfectly and gave us everything we could ever need and ever want. And it wasn't enough for us. So we messed it up. And even with all of that, we still are blessed to live in God's creation. Well, we are blessed to wake up this morning, to have life in our bodies, to breathe the air into our lungs. We're blessed to see the beauty of the mountains and the forests and the rivers and the lakes and the oceans and the sunsets and the sunrises and the snow and the rain, to see the deer and the giraffes and the birds and every other thing in God's creation. There's so much beauty around us that we are blessed to see. It means we are blessed even more than all of that, to be called children of the most high God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Even though God gave us perfection and we chose instead to live in imperfection, he still allows us to be a part of his family and a part of his kingdom. See, we are blessed because God is perfect, because he makes no mistakes, because he gave us a world that, Continues to work. Every horror, every heartache, every struggle, every battle of this world is the result of our wickedness, not God's failure. Do we recognize the beauty and the majesty of God's design for His creation? When we look around us, do we focus on all the negative stuff, everything that's wrong? Or can we step back and go, but I serve a perfect God. And look at all he has done because he is perfect and he makes no mistakes. God's perfect work was broken by our sin. Okay, let's keep going with this then. well, What what does that mean? Well, what it means is, because sin has broken perfection, it means that someone must bear the weight of responsibility. Someone must bear the weight of responsibility. From Genesis 1-1, if you flip over to chapter 3, and verse 8 and 9, And again, we read part of this verse before, but we're, not, we're gonna look at it and what's, what's happening here. And what happens when you get to Genesis chapter three, verse eight and nine is that um, Adam has stood by and allowed his wife to be deceived by the serpent. He didn't take his stand as the man God had created him and called him to be. And so his wife fell into sin. And so he fell into sin. And so now Adam and Eve have, have rebelled against God, against his creation, against his goodness, against his provision. And they've realized it. So they've run off to hide. And in Genesis three, verse eight, and nine, it says this, the man and, and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse nine says, so the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? What's God asking here? Does he not know where they've hidden? Is God playing hide and seek with them? No, he is God. He knows exactly where they are. What God is asking here, essentially what he's saying is, Adam, Eve, do you guys have any concept of what you've done? Do you have any idea what you've done? Do you know what you've surrendered for this moment of getting what you think you want? Do you realize what the consequences are now gonna be? See the result of Adam and Eve's sin? is far reaching <laughs> and broader than we could go into detail on every aspect of what this means. But at its core, it is this, it is a separation from God. Right? God walked in the garden with them. They had this communion with God that we cannot even begin to imagine. But they chose sin, they chose themselves over the Lord. And they created this separation, really a a removal of God's presence. So there's now this chasm between God and his creation. It's the chasm of sin. Again, this is why we suffer heartbreak and illness and sadness and loneliness and every other hint of, of brokenness in our lives. It's because we have created a chasm between ourselves and our good, holy, perfect God. In Isaiah 59, verse one and two, God says it like this. He says, indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save and his ear is not too deaf to hear, but your iniquities are separating you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. Right, God doesn't hide from us. God's not afraid of what we might bring into his presence. It is we who hide from him. We have created the chasm. We have separated ourselves from him. And if that chasm is to be breached, if we're to be reunited with our God, then the weight and the responsibility of the sin that created that chasm must be brought to bear. This happens in every aspect of our lives, right? I ran across this week a a couple paragraphs of of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and a little little information about kind of what what happened to these guys. And I want to read this to you. It says, 56 men signed the Declaration of Independence. Their conviction resulted in untold suffering for themselves and their families. Of the 56 men, five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. 12 had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the revolutionary army. Another t- another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardship in the war. Carter Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy planter and, and trader, saw his ship sunk by the British Navy. He sold his home and properties to pay his debts, and he died in poverty. At the Battle of Yorktown, the British General Cornwallis had taken over Thomas Nelson's home for his headquarters. Nelson quietly ordered General George Washington to to open fire on the Nelson home. The home was destroyed and Nelson died bankrupt. John Hart was driven from his dying wife's bedside. Their 13 children fled for their lives. For over a year, he lived in the forest and in caves, returning home only to find his wife dead and his children vanished. A few weeks later, he died from exhaustion. These men made a choice, and they had to bear the responsibility of that choice. Why did they suffer and die? Because they'd made that choice, and they stood by it. They carried the weight of their responsibilities as seekers of freedom. We all face something more daunting than freedom. We all face the weight of our sin. The weight of our sin must be brought to bear. Now, here's the good news. We don't have to bear the weight of our sin. You do not have to bear the weight of your sin. See, all sin must be reconciled to God by blood before his perfect and holy nature in Hebrews chapter nine verse twenty two it says without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. This is the basis of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Go read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy this week. Yeah, do it. Good. Leviticus and Deuteronomy this week. Read through and read all about the sacrificial system and all of the offerings, all of the sacrifices that had to be made, all the blood that had to be shed, that had to be poured out. Why? Because the people sinned and it required blood to make that right. And so they offered these temporary band-aids of bulls and goats and birds This is why Jesus came to take on human flesh, coming into the world as a child in a manger. So that through his perfect life and through the sacrificial death of that perfect life and through the victorious resurrection that followed the sacrificial death, Jesus would take on the full weight of the responsibility for our sin upon his own shoulders and bear that weight, bear that burden once and for all. See our thoughts throughout the Christmas season as joyful and celebratory as they may rightfully be, and they should be joyful and celebratory, but they should also be driven by our gratitude at the relief of our responsibility for making right what our sin has broken. And that doesn't mean we don't have any responsibilities in this life. We just trust in Jesus and I can do whatever I want and it's all okay. No, we, we we are called to love the Lord and love one another, to serve the kingdom, to be proclaimers of the gospel. But when it comes to our salvation, to our reconciliation to a good, holy, and perfect God, we don't bear that weight because we can't. It would crush us. And so Jesus came and bore the weight of that responsibility on our behalf. Listen, do we realize the immensity of the weight that we bear when we try to take on life on our own? The immensity of the weight we would bear if not for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. See, God's work is perfect. Perfect but our sin has messed it up. And as great a bummer as that is, we thank God for what he would do through Jesus Christ. See when Jesus came, he brought the initiation of re of recreation. The initiation of recreation. when we've got God's perfect work, we've got this brokenness of sin that really brings everything evil and, and, and heartbreaking and difficult into this world and into our lives. But even all the way back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter three, God promised the defeat of Satan, promised the defeat of sin and its power over mankind. When God tells Adam and Eve the, the results of their sin, what they would have to suffer and struggle through in this life, he also turns to the serpent and he says, whoa, 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 you're not getting out of this. Let me tell you what's gonna happen. And in Genesis three, verse 15, God says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. When it says her offspring here, it's talking about Jesus. He, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He will strike your head and he will strike your heel. Now, if you have the, the NIV, which is the way I learned this growing up, it says he will, um, he will crush your head, right? And you will strike his heel. Um, in in the, the Hebrew language, what it says Jesus is gonna do and what it says Satan will do is the same word, Right, so here it says, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Right? It's same word. But let me ask you this. Would you rather take a shot to the head or a shot to the heel? Will you want somebody to punch you in the head or punch you in the heel? Show of hands, who wants head? No nobody? No. Why? Because that's that's game changer right there. See, God's redemption, his reclamation of his creation was initiated in Jesus Christ, is initiated when the word became flesh and dwelled among us, as it says in John 1.14, right? The word, the word became flesh, the word is Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about this, this, this verse and the significance of this word dwelled, right, or tabernacled among us. It says, When the word became flesh and dwelled among us, we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Jesus came to initiate our redemption by his life, his death, and his resurrection. And what's even greater than that is that that word will return to complete God's redemption and to reset what our sin has broken. You go all the way to the end of this story in Revelation 21, verse five, it says, the one seated on the throne says, look, I am making everything, anybody know? New. I'm making everything new. Now, you can get into some theological discussions with people as to what new means. And some people say, well, the, the world's gonna go away. God brings this brand new creation. Some will say, well, God is, is um, restoring our creation back to the way he originally made it. Great, study it, figure out what you think. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. That's missing the, the, the forest for the trees. Because what God is saying is, it's all gonna be taken care of. There's no more fear, there's no more pain, there's no more suffering, there's no more tears. There's no more struggle. Why? Because I've made it all new. I've taken away your sin. I've removed it from the equation and you are left only with my goodness, my glory and my love for you. Listen, I don't care if I'm living in a restored earth or a brand new earth, because I get that presence of God. Jesus initiated our redemption at his birth and he will bring it to completion, to all creation through his eternal victory when he returns. Here's why this is so important for us to remember. Because our salvation in Jesus Christ is not about a better life on earth. It's not about a more fulfilling life sense of our effort, our work. It's not about us being better people. It it is all of those things, but it's about so much more. Because Jesus came to earth to bring God's redemption, we have the promise of eternity in God's perfect presence, in his restored creation, in that perfect creation, that God gave to Adam and Eve. That should change the way that we interpret our idea of of life, because life is no longer about some 80 years of being happy or successful. It's about reflecting on Christ through every thought, every word and every deed right now, through all of eternity. This understanding should fix the way we view our work and our efforts in this world because it's not about finding satisfaction or, or leaving a legacy. It's about cultivating godliness and Christ-likeness for the world around us to see so that they have a reflection of this good, holy, and perfect God that we serve, that we love, that we know it alters our entire concept of salvation because it moves us away from some cheap grace fire insurance of I gotta believe in Jesus so I don't go to hell to reminding us of why we believe in him because he is exactly who he says he is and he does exactly what he says he will do (laughs) because his glory is unimaginable to us. And as unimaginable as it may be, we will get to experience it and know it in ways that make no stinking sense to your brain or my brain. See, this Christmas season, we think back, we reflect on on that moment, that birth of Jesus in a manger. But it should also draw us to, to look ahead to the complete and perfect Completed work that brings that union with our God, with his love, with his power, and with his deliverance. Because through Jesus' birth, we have the initiation of that recreation. Again, the Christmas story does more than tell us about the incarnation of God. It does that. It does more than tell us the start of God's redemptive work very importantly does that too. It does more than tell us about how much God loves us as individuals or as his church. Again, it does that. But the Christmas story unites our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength with the bigger picture of God's sovereignty and God's purpose. In the birth of Jesus, the innocent and holy king, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, we are hearkened back to that perfection of God's original creation. The the purpose of God's entrance into mankind, being clothed in human flesh to offer himself as the payment for our sin reminds us of the crushing weight of responsibility that must be brought to bear because of our sin. As we look ahead to the results of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, as we look to his eternal rule, we receive the hope of his completed work. We remember that Jesus came to inaugurate that recreation of the heavens and the earth for all of God's glory. Church family, as we prepare for the next several weeks of this Christmas season, may we continue to celebrate not just the birth of Jesus, again, as important as that is. May we not simply celebrate a birth, but may we celebrate the entire scope of that story, of God's great and awesome love, of Jesus' redemptive work, of the Holy Spirit's power at work in us and through us. And as we do this, let us celebrate creation's greatest gifts, our redemption, our hope, our joy, salvation on our Father God, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for, for all that you do. We thank you for the blessing we have to be able to celebrate the Christmas story, not as some great story from the past not as a, a a good lesson not as a miraculous birth but as the entire <laughs> the entire majesty of your great and awesome love poured into human flesh brought into the world in the most unlikely way to walk humbly through this life, living perfectly without sin the way you created us to live, dying sacrificially on a cross, shedding the only blood that could ever take away our sin, leaving an empty tomb in its wake, Delivering us to your family, Lord. May we not, may we not forget just everything that this story means. And as we do, as we remember, as we celebrate together, uh, may our hearts just be overwhelmed with. Gratitude and, and joy. We might celebrate the fact that we serve the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And may we share that with the world around us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. In your great and awesome name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.